Welcome to the Gen X Music Show, a special review and retrospective of Smashing Pumpkins and their new album, Sear. Before I get started, I would like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee, in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, no one can really go to any place right now. Um, they're trying to work things out, maybe get that star rating that they have in Mesa County. But in the meantime, it's going to be kind of difficult. So unless you get there during the day or you have a reservation to sit outside, it's going to be hard. So I suggest you go to bfwdenver.com. If you're a wine lover like me, I'm actually having the 2017 Cabernet right now. It's my favorite of their selection. But they've got Pinot. They've got Rieslings for with the Western Slope Winery called uh, Storm Cellars. they got basically anything you need. They also do virtual wine tastings, which are extremely popular. Uh, and you have to book those out uh, a couple months ahead of time. So if you're going to give it away as a gift for Christmas here, I would suggest you go to bfwdenver.com right now and check them out. They're located in what is called the Activated Alley of the Dairy Block, but I just say that it's between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado. Just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the Dairy Block. Uh, go to bfwdenver.com to order and check out any sort of wine that you possibly would need. They do deliver in Denver. And they also will ship it to you. Uh, you. They are on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. When you go in or you talk to them, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. All right. Now is up for a very special C, uh, uh, <laughs> Gen X music show. A review of Sear. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on latest Gen X Music Show. I am your host, Jeff Morton. Joining me today, as he does often, is uh, a man located at Somewheresville, Colorado, uh, with a bat-winged entity behind him once again. It is our friend, Magnus. Hello, Magnus. I join you often, but not often enough. Good to be with you, Morty, as always. Well, yeah, you weren't, uh, you weren't with us uh, last, uh, last week when we did... Uh, what did we do last week? Uh, years in uh, rock. Yeah. yeah, I was. That was disappointing. I had a. I had something good picked out, but I'll be on the next one. So. Well, here's a special one that uh, Magnus and I have been talking about for a while. That we've been anticipating the release, which happened this week, of the new Smashing Pumpkins album, Sear. Um, for those of you who have been paying attention, uh, Sear has been actually there was. I think they released uh, six singles. Uh, ten. From, ten singles. Yeah, this. since like September or like two months, they've been dropping singles every couple of weeks. Well, and that's a, it's a, it's got 20 tracks on it. So they obviously saved 10 of those for, <laughs> for the, this album, which is a considered to be a double album. Obviously, if you have Apple Music or Spotify, you're getting it all in one chunk, but this is a double album. Um, so Magnus, just kind of going in on your opinions, just kind of surface, um, approaching this album is there was there something sort of a, an expectation you had outside of because i remember when they released the first single sear which is the title track 
I was like, this is going to be a synth pop album. Where did you have the same expectations after that first single? And uh, of course, when listening to that album, I, I didn't actually. I loved the first single, Seer. It's a deliciously dark slice of dark wave. Um, but I didn't anticipate the whole album would be in that vein. Um, but, uh, you know, then it's the, the other single started to trickle out and it became pretty obvious that this was going to be a very specific artistic statement in a very specific musical and emotional vein. Yeah. And um, I think right away it started to irritate people. <laughs> <laughs> that they very quickly making, yeah that they weren't making you know gish volume two um that this yeah. was something new and it even sounds radically different than their last album from 2018 shiny and oh so bright of which is this is technically the second installment of but it sounds mm -hmm. nothing like it no it doesn't so i'll, I'll say this you know a couple of years ago i saw the pumpkins in denver for the Shiny you know, So Bright tour with our friend Patrick Aaron. And that was a three hour concert. And the experience I can summarize was like this. It was exhausting. It was exhilarating. Right. It was irritating. <laughs> it was frustrating. It, and that sort of sums up the pumpkins in general. And this album also, you know, that's just how they roll. They don't do what you think they should do. I remember watching the concert going, why are they doing four covers? Why am I watching Smashing Pumpkins do Stairway to Heaven? Um, but they did it. And that irritated people. But at the same time, they did great original stuff too. So um, as usual, they are not giving us what we think we want. Right. I, you and I, we, as we do, we talk frequently. Uh, well, basically every day. And it occurred to me as we were discussing this album uh, in the lead up to the album being released, that this album, if you pay any attention to uh, the Smashing Pumpkins, you know that these left turns that, that uh, they take, or, or I should say Billy Corgan takes, um, are to be expected. Um, and I remember speaking to you about it, actually, I, and when I sent you, I think I sent you uh, the first single, uh, Sear and I'm like people are hating this already they are hating this already and yep. that, that is something that I wasn't expecting now we're kind of getting giving you some prehistory of the album before we get into it but uh, I wasn't expecting the vociferous reaction and the, the previous album was okay you know it wasn't it wasn't a world beater but it was okay uh, but I was not expecting the violently negative just all around, like from, you know, the very online community that uh, we saw that it was just so, so just like, what are they doing? This is crap. I enjoyed it, to be honest with you. So I, I just wasn't expecting it, like just based on the first few singles, I suppose. I, I think I agree with Morty. The critic reaction to this album and, and the pumpkins in general is, is um, so vociferous and passionate that it it's clearly not driven by actual critique of the music there's personal things going on and it always has been i think for a lot of critics it's always been with the pumpkins you know where do they get off yeah you know back in the heyday in the 90s heyday where they also got horrible reviews it was where do they get off mixing acdc with with sisters of mercy when this is the era of grunge and Britpop? 
Where do they get off? And now it's the same thing. Where do they get off thinking they still have a career, thinking they're still writing songs and not playing the nostalgia game? Where do they get off? It's almost like there's this sense that Billy Corgan doesn't know his place. That, that's my sense. It always has been from the critics, which is, well, which is completely separate from the quality of the music. Right, and, we, and we'll get more into that later because that plays a big factor into his career overall, uh, particularly with the Smashing Pumpkins. But I, I, one of the more fascinating things is now that we can get kind of into the meat of this album, you and I both tend to like dark wave synth wave music. Um, and so maybe this album will speak to you and I more than it will your average smashing pumpkins fan who wants to hear something that's more akin to a door or maybe Siamese dream, uh, or something like that. Maybe they were in tune to that. Maybe they wanted it a nineties nostalgia trip because, uh, they've got Jimmy Chamberlain and, uh, James Eha back and maybe they're thinking, okay, that first, that, that the 2018 uh, album was just them dipping their toe back in. Now that's going to be real Smashing Pumpkins. And I think the left turn is what is pissing people off. Uh, because to me, if you just take it as a piece of what a quote art, it's to me, it's, it stands up there with uh, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, uh, this particularly with, I would put it up there with a, a door to be quite honest with you. It's, that's how good I think it is. Yeah. It's a, it's an excellent album. It's, um, it's a subtle album. It's, it's an album that requires a lot of listens to get to know. Um, you know, I think a part of the frustration with it is, and it's, it's understandable, right? So he's been talking for years about getting the band back together, quote unquote, <laughs> And he finally did, for the most part. But not only does he have himself and James A. Ha, two great guitarists, they've also maintained um, Jeff Schroeder, their longtime guitar player from the second incarnation of the Pumpkins, who's, who's an absolute maniac on the guitar. So he has a band now, finally, with three amazing guitar players. And having assembled this guitar army, what does he do? He says, we're going to make a dark wave album with almost no discernible guitars. Right. It's so incongruous that it is, it, I can see how that would frustrate people. And I actually, I share some of that. I listen to some of these songs and I think, God, this song would really use a ripping Billy Corgan solo yeah. or an Iha riff, you know, that's really stomping. But they just didn't want to go there. And, and you know, maybe that there's more guitars on there than it sounds like. We saw um, the Pumpkins perform Sierra live on Jimmy Fallon. Mm -hmm. um, which you can see on YouTube and it's the band playing live and there's James Ehi and he's playing on a guitar parts that I thought were synth parts. Mm -hmm. They're heavily processed and uh, the same with Schroeder. They're, and I'm like, oh, maybe those were guitars all along. Maybe they just found a new way to to soundscape it. But, you know, I think that's part of the frustration. They did. And you know what it reminded me of? And you, you Magnus, will appreciate this this bit of historical uh, reference here. Uh, Robert Plant in 1985 was all about being of 1985. So uh, he made Robbie Blunt, his then guitar player, play what is what was then known as a very primitive synth guitar. I believe Jimmy Page played that on uh, the Death Wish. Yeah. 
on the Death Wish soundtrack, and he plays it on his Outrider album on uh, Blues Anthem. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very specific, uh, very 80s synth sound to it. And when I watched that performance, I'm like, that makes sense now. This is very, this is, this is next wave synth wave with, with guitar. Um, when I recorded my album in 1999, uh, I used uh, the, the gentleman who had ran the studio uh, had a synth guitar or a MIDI guitar which you could play and get different sounds from. It was a very interesting technology for 1998, 99. Um, I got to be able to, you know, experience that sort of thing. So when I saw that performance, I'm like, okay, what we're hearing and what we're seeing makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, that I think you hit it right on the head. It's a dark wave album. The thing about dark wave is, it's it's a danceable musical genre. It's right. uh, you know its origins in goth and sort of those mechanical beats, um, drums, machines, etc. You know, it goes all the way back to Sisters and before them, Suicide. Um, and so there is that sameness to dark wave albums where they right. can all kind of blend together because they hit sort of the same emotional tone with kind of the same beats. Right. So I, I would say this as a valid criticism of this album. It's not a dynamic album, no. sonically. No, it's very there's not. Yeah, there's not the highs and lows, both internally within songs themselves or between songs. So you don't have the highs and lows, the stop starts. But actually, Jim, uh, Billy Corgan is a master of, you know, and, and there's not, uh, this is another thing that's different from other Pumpkins albums. They're about all the same length. They're all about three and a half minutes of very similar sonically sounding things. Right. There's not that one pumpkins opus that we're used to. No one, uh, you know, Rubina, um, uh, not Rubina, um, uh, I'm blanking on it, but you know, uh, airplane mm-hmm. uh, flies high, turns left. Uh, Starla. Yeah. There's no great guitar, long yeah. epic in minute pumpkins building song that I think it would have benefited from if only to break it up and, and create some sense of momentum or conclusion to it. I, did you find yourself wanting, say like we started this off with the hidden sun. I found myself thinking this needs a guitar solo. And I rarely say that anymore, but it needed, it needed a punch, a dynamic boost, even though it's my favorite song on the album. I was thinking, like the 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 musician in me was thinking, like God, if they, if only they had that like slight dynamic change in the middle, and maybe yeah. that would take it to another end. So what what we're seeing here is a very new order type of album. This is to me, this album screams new order and early '80s goth, basically. Um, so you're seeing the, as you pointed out, the sameness of it, but there's a dynamic. Uh, Dynamism, dynamism, whatever. Dynamism, dynamism. Yes, that people missed because you got to listen to this album repeatedly to pick up everything. And I think one of the great things that you and I were able to do on this is just explore the album. We made each other explore the album prior to getting on the 
getting this on this uh, podcast in order to get a true sense of it. And I think a lot of people get the surface judgment and they're like, eh, it's done. And then they come back and they appreciate the album later. This is a repeat listening album. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. And let's not forget that many albums of theirs have had that treatment. Right. Adore. Adore was reviled. Yes, it was. Critically lambasted. And it was like, it was a similar type of thing. They had just come off melancholy and it was like, what is this drum machines on a pumpkins album what is this the guitar on a pumpkins album it's like where do they get off it was just such a left turn from where they had just been people just dismissed that right and now of course the door is a masterpiece it is and rightly so and uh so this might be one of those you know i i will say um corgan has named check sisters of mercy a lot and those early sisters singles um, do have the drum machine, Dr. Avalanche sound. Right. But here's the, th- and this is, I think, the trap that Billy let himself fall into. When you have that drum machine sound, where it's a mechanical or very, you know, uh, structured rhythm, and there's not a lot of dynamism in the um, percussion, the way the sisters overcame that was the vocal and guitar performances. You know, if the rhythm is the same throughout, then the vocal performance has to really be dynamic in right. order for it not to sound samey. So you have Andrew Eldridge in the climax of the song is screaming his lungs out or, right. you know, guttural growls are just really attacking it vocally in order so that it doesn't sound the same because it can easily when you're using those uh, program percussions. And Billy didn't, do that it's he has a same or i would say a similar vocal approach on each song so i think he dug himself a hole that way now we're talking about some of the downsides but i I actually love this album (laughs) you i mean so let's talk about some of the virtues oh yeah well how about we play one of the virtues yeah let me load up a song that both you and i like one of the better songs in the album um a song that i think that uh kind of Basically, this I think this song kind of encapsulates what this album was trying to get across better than most of the songs on the album. It's a song called Wrath. One of my favorite songs in this album, and you can hear the guitars in this song too. <laughs> yeah, um, but that that sort of uh, is a perfect illustration of everything we're talking about. You have a very sort of per, uh, program percussion, mm-hmm. and you have the the vocal is very upfront in the mix, and then you have some uh, synth melodies, right? But they're kind of in the background at first, and so you know another thing I think you know the pr- the production is a little flat it and is. i know that billy is the is listed as the produ- the producer of this album mm-hmm. and in the past they've worked with producers you know like and last time they worked with rick rubin etc um so i wonder if that's a part of it i wonder if a, a external producer would have pushed them to do some more different instrumentation and dynamics 
Well, let me let me throw this at you. Um, you brought up uh, Sisters of Mercy. Both you and I like that. But when you think of uh, their most known song, which is Temple of Love, that song changes. I mean, it is driving. It is a... And the temple of love, 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 you know, and it's got that different, as you were saying, different approach to vocals, but it's also a song where you can like, I could drive down the road and listen to this fucking song, right? It's a yeah. different thing from what it was because then you could listen to the rest of that album and get a completely different approach. And I think mm -hmm. that is part of what is missing because all the songs are very mid-tempo. Mm -hmm. it, it is a very 90s attempt at synthwave which is which is sounds like a criticism but it's not because everything to me works but well not everything not every song is great but to me it works in the way they were doing it but you are right in a sense that there's a very everything floats along on the same plane and mm -hmm. i think it just I think it desperately needed, particularly with an album that's 20 songs, it yeah. needed some some of that dynamic shift uh, to just kind of, oh, perk you up like in song 10 or something like that. You know, it's funny because I heard um, Billy Corgan in an interview the other day on, on YouTube and he said that there was, there was a 16 track version of this mm. and he admitted that was probably better. You know, and I think you, you hit it on the head. If you're going to have that sameness to the sonic and emotional planes they're reaching, then the number of songs works against you. If this right. had been a five song EP, that it wouldn't be an issue, right? But when you're talking about a 72 minute, 20 song double album, um, it really helps to have some variation. You know, having said that though, as I was trying to call this down myself, because I thought, okay, this is 20 songs. Um, I'll cut three or four songs out of it for my own personal playlist, and it'll be tighter, and I'll enjoy it more. Mm -hmm. But then as I was looking for songs to cut, I had a really hard time, because right. I actually liked every song individually. Right. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I don't like this song that much. And I listened to it, and be like, actually, that's really lovely. I didn't notice that before. And so I really struggled on how to cut it down. Um, I also found, I don't know if you found this, I enjoyed it more when I played it on shuffle as opposed from beginning to end. 100%. And, and I think the reason for that is that the first half is much stronger than the back half. I think right. that sense of sameness creeps in, in, the, in the second half of the album. So when I put it on shuffle and it mixes it up, I find it's, it's, it's much more dynamic sounding. The interesting thing, though, is that my favorite song in the album is on the is like fourth from the the end of the of the yeah. album, the hidden oh, yeah. sun, and it, and it's like it's that fun. is to me the peak of the album. But when you're thinking about this album, I can listen to this album because I do a lot of I do a lot of planning, I do preparation for you know a radio show, I do I do a def, a bunch of different things, and I'm finding this album sits very well with me while I'm trying to get in a creative mood, which is an interesting kind of uh, way to look at this because I don't think that if you're, I could pick out one song from this album. Say if I, we, we picked out Adrenaline or if we picked out uh, Sear, um, Confessions of a Dopamine Addict or anything like that. And, and you, 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 you 
put them out there as just one single, I don't think they would stand out. I mean, Sear was released as, as the first single. But I Which don't is think, the strongest track on the album. I think. Yeah, and, but it, it's like you're not, you're not getting a lot of deviation here. Normally, when you have a series of singles, you, you get deviation. You get yeah. this is different from everything else, and there's not. But at the same time, it doesn't distract me at all from enjoying the album. And it is a weird dichotomy that I can't, you know, as a music lover and someone who likes Smashing Pumpkins, it's hard for me to process this. I, I agree, and I found that I really enjoy listening to this album while I'm reading. Yep. So I'll be reading something, and that sameness that we we're talking about kind of lulls me in, so I don't have to pay attention as much. But then something really pleasant will break through, and I'll notice a melody or a synth part that I didn't notice before, and I'll be like, "Oh wow, that actually is really lovely. I didn't notice that before." Um, so I agree. It's it's definitely a beast of its own. Um, and, and I do really enjoy it on shuffle. And um, it, the, the first half is definitely stronger for sure. Some of my favorite standouts, yeah. uh, Dulcet in E. Yep, is like that one. Absolutely lovely. Yep. The, the title track is the best one on the album. It's, it's gloriously dark and glossy. Um, the Hidden Sun. Now, The Hidden Sun, you're right, is one of the strongest tracks on the album. Unfortunately, it's buried in the middle of the second half. And I kept thinking when I listened to that song, it's so lovely. It just gets lost there. If this had, if this album had been 12 tracks and The Hidden Sun was the last track, it wouldn't have gotten lost as much. You know what I mean? I think it's an editing problem. Well, yeah, but look at it this way, uh, Magnus. We got it sandwiched between Haunted and Schadenfreude. And, both and I those, actually like both of those songs. Yeah, and both of those are, but they're, they, they suffer from the, 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 the problem that we're having with the rest of this album. You, you, you pick out a song that is great, that you really respond to, but it's surrounded by songs, two songs that are almost the same plane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's hard to make it stand out. And I, I like that's like one of the good things about like Apple Music and, you know, buying these things. And, and, and folks buy try to whenever possible buy a physical copy because it supports the artist at least that's my own personal view um but there is a a missed opportunity i think with this album because i like it but i feel like i should love it do you feel that way? I yeah, feel, I, agree. I feel like I agree. there's a next yeah. level here that I can achieve that is there, there's a barrier that's really kind of keeping me from that. I, I, I agree. It's, uh, it's frustrating in that way, in the, in the way that a lot of Pumpkin's material is. Now, here's so Dulcet and E is lovely. Yes. The title track's lovely. The Hidden Sun is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ana Santana. It's yes. got a great guitar line. Unfortunately, that guitar line is buried in the mix. Yes, I would love is. to have seen it more for, in the forefront. Um, Haunted, I love. Um, I like Witch. The Witch is great. Witch is great. Yeah, although he's getting a lot of criticism for mispronouncing Sawain, <laughs> <laughs> the, the pagan holiday. He pronounces it Samhain, which is, of course, how it's spelled, but I guess he's gotten lambasted by the wicca community for mispronouncing their sacred holiday oh my god i know right um (laughs) but i but i really enjoy that and i i would have liked to have seen more of that type of stuff on the album um 
But, you know, here's the thing. They, I heard him talking the other day. They're making a, a new double album that's going to be a sequel to Melancholy. And he has said, and they have like 33 songs written already for that. And they're expecting it next year sometime. And so, you know, how lucky are we? And he says that this guitar, this album is going to be much more what people expect. It's going to be much more guitar driven and in the vein of Melancholy. And so, I mean, just think about it. In the span of three years, we'll have gotten an eight song, basically extended play right. by produced by Rick Rubin a gloriously sprawling, challenging, irritating, lovely double album of dark wave synth pop. And, and right around the corner is a guitar driven, um, you know, uh, uh, opus <laughs> in the vein of melancholy and, and machina. So all I can say is thank God for these guys that they're still doing it and trying and putting music out. Well, in that in that spirit, uh, Magnus, I think we should uh, incorporate a little bit of one of my favorite songs on here. Um, it is a it is a song that I think has a fantastic title. Um, it's a song called uh, "Purple Blood." All right, so that song's a little different than the other songs. Uh, there is yeah, it is more prominent guitar in purple. More prominent guitar. It's a little different rhythm, so I would say that's definitely one of the standouts for me because it does stand out. Right, you know, like Witch, um, like Hidden Sun, like Seer. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of the first track on the album, which was also one of the first singles, "Color of Love." Yeah, um, I like how we threw the U in. And the color of yeah. love <laughs> boy boy does that irritate critics too it's again who does he think he is who does he think he is using a british spelling <laughs> <laughs> you know but uh, I, I i sorry go ahead no I, I, i'm at the point and i think i think just in a in a just a general sense if i'm going to sit here and tell you whether I recommend this album or not, I will tell you absolutely. But I'm trying to determine, and maybe you can answer this one for me, Magnus, how much of my recommendation is being influenced by the fact that I do love Synthwave, Dark Synthwave, uh, and the fact that I'm a Fast Smashing Pumpkins fan. Uh, because if this was a insert random name artist, would I be recommending this album um i would yeah because i happen to like this type of music and know it mm -hmm. um I, I i i suspect you would um because there are some really lovely songs on here right uh and you know I, I i have a feeling that most people will enjoy it more if they call it down you know 
to maybe half its length, just pick the 10 or 12 songs on it that they like the most and listen to it on shuffle. And I think it'll be a much better listening experience. And probably that it might be one of those albums that everyone has a different version of it because they, and I think he actually had like 30 songs originally for this album. They pulled it down to 20. Although I would have loved to have seen the 16 track version. Uh, right. I mean, they, they I wonder what they would have left off. Maybe they would have left off something I love. That's the yeah, now here's here's something I'm going to throw out there. Melancholy. We're going to talk a little more about the 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 history of Smashing Pumpkins in our next segment. But Melancholy, I don't feel like it needs to be shorter, right? But this one, I feel like you, where it's like that 16 track version, seems like more of a sweep sweet spot for like where they were going, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a difference between um, getting, putting out your best and then just beating people over the head with it. And I think there's where the balance was. However, I'm going to say this as someone who, I said, once again, Smashing Pumpkins fan, like synthwave music. Um, I very much like this album and I very much would recommend it. Uh, to me, to me, it is a good album that is flawed. And I think, a lot of bands would want that sort of thing. Um, I, I think that the flaws are there, they're noticeable, and you'll probably agree with both Magnus and I, but I would wholeheartedly recommend this album. And I think it is um, in the uh, hellscape that is 2020, it is a very, for me, a very bright spot. And, and I, you know, as even though all the criticisms that I've mentioned here that are valid, here's the proof it's in the pudding i'm listening to it every day right right i mean i, I was listening to it with a car today i listened to it last night until i fell asleep um i was listening to it when i just took a shower and you know so i'm listening to it then that's always the proof and i every time i think oh maybe i'll cut that song and then i listen to it again i'm like no actually that's really nice. <laughs> i really like that <laughs> but i think you know the outside producer is maybe a key i think had they had an outside producer, they might have said something like, you got to cut five songs because some of these songs sound too similar. Right. Or you need to write another song. It's like, how many times have we heard that story from a producer? They have, uh, they have a band, they've made the album, and then the producer says, guys, I just listened to the whole album again, and we need one more. We need a, we need a rocker, or we need a, we need a hit. You know, it's, just, it's missing something. And often that, that separate, that external voice that can look at it objectively can be right, you know? Yes. And, and I, I think this might have benefited from that addition. I, I agree, I agree. Um, and sometimes a producer is a detriment, but most times they're the voice of reason to curb your pretensions. And yeah, and the, the, a lot of times that's time needed. We, <laughs> yeah, it's like the you know when we talked last time when you and I talked, Morty, we talked about ACDC, and mm-hmm. Joe was with us on that. And you know we were talking about the Mutt Lang glory days, where Mutt Lang produced uh, Highway to Hell, Back in Black, and then for those about to rock. And then the band decided we don't need a producer; we can produce ourselves. And then we had "Look at the Switch" <laughs> in the wall, you know, and and that that voice of reason was, I think, really missed, and you could really tell the difference. It yeah. doesn't take away from the musicianship. No. It's just sometimes it's hard for an artist to see the big picture because they're in it yeah. in their head, you know. So I can imagine 
uh, a Rick Rubin, how they chose to work with him again, saying, you guys got to cut this down to 10 and you need to boost some guitars on this song. You need to write another track that's more radio friendly or something, right, to mix it up and make it more palatable. Um, now, maybe they would have cut something I actually love on this album, so who knows. But I think the hidden sun would have been to... cut <laughs> because yeah, it was it was dumped at the back half of this album, but I love that song. I love it too. Check out Hidden Sun. It's a gem. It yes, really it is. is. And by the way, there's you know, I would say Sear, the title track, and the Hidden Sun, I would put on any pumpkin's best of. Those yeah. are just gorgeous gorgeous tunes i I love both of them um all right we're gonna take a break and we're gonna come back and talk i'm gonna do a draft kings read and then i'll talk about kind of the history of of the black the black crows jeez the smashing pumpkins jeez anyway we're gonna talk about the history of the smashing pumpkins as jeff the professor of music could who never gets anything wrong, could tell you. And uh, we'll just kind of see where uh, Sear fits in the pantheon of, uh, of what some really great Smashing Pumpkins uh, albums. And we'll talk to you in a bit. I'll t- talk to you about uh, DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Uh, the game may not be uh, full, but there's still definitely no shortage of madness this college basketball season. For us fans, the college basketball powers that be have gifted us a top-tier matchup between two powerhouses. This weekend, Gonzaga and Baylor will be going toe-to-toe for what could be the nation's top ranking. Drafting Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is bringing you closer to the action with these can't-miss offers. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all college basketball fans who sign up now the chance to win $100 when betting on either Gonzaga or Baylor to win this Clash of Titans. Plus, you'll get a deposit bonus of up to $1,000 when signing up and using promo code MHS. DraftKings Sportsbook has endless ways for you to bet, from live betting to betting on your favorite players. They do it all. Draft King, uh, download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code MHS when you sign up for your shot to turn $1 into $100 when betting on either Gonzaga or Baylor to win. That's right, bet $1 to win $100. Use promo code MHS during sign-up to take advantage of these great offers. For a limited time, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Uh, Matt, you do, uh, uh, Magnus, you do a bunch of, uh, of, uh, of these sportsbook betting too, don't you? No. <laughs> you don't. I don't know what you're talking no, no. about. <laughs> Is that Pat's wheelhouse? I only I only bet on midget wrestling, but I don't think there are big... <laughs> things that are banned in most countries. Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. Let's go to Bangladesh to play my best. <laughs> Okay, uh, before I before I laugh myself into an oblivion, let's go. Let's play some bullet with butterfly wings. The world is a vampire. Secret destroyers. Hold your 
All right, we are back with uh, Smashing Pumpkins, my favorite Smashing Pumpkins song, right there. Um, that bring that that particular song brings back so many memories for me. It is absolutely amazing how that does that. Um, but kind of in the when you talk about Smashing Pumpkins, it it, it brings up a whole bunch of different kind of images. Um, be it the Tonight Tonight video that was done in a uh, I think they had to purchase a, an old silent film to, to make that video. Um, the, be it, yeah, be it the 1979 video. All of these songs are from Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Or the brilliant album, Siamese Dream. Um, with, where would you start with uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Magnus? Is there, is there a place where you begin to really glom on to what they are? Uh, if I was a listener, like, do you mean if I was like recommending for people who aren't into pumpkins to get into them, what would I recommend? Well, where, no, I where was your journey beginning? Um, uh, my first exposure was uh, actually Gish. Hmm. Um, I, a friend of mine was playing Gish and I heard Rhinoceros. Oh, and song. it was just. I never heard anything quite like it. I loved the way it just hung there and was really patient and built and uh, was very hypnotic and the playing was amazing. And so I got it. And, you know, to be fair, when I first got Gish, I did not like all the songs right away. I liked Windowpane. I liked Rhinoceros. Right. Um, uh, but I thought those were just absolute gorgeous rock uh, constructions. And then Siamese Dream came out, and that was a big hit, of course. That was their breakthrough. Right. Um, but um, I didn't like it as much as Gish at first. Now, of course, I, I love Siamese Dream. But at really? the time, I think, I think for me, I didn't like Disarm, and that mm -hmm. was the big hit. It was on MTV all the time. Yeah, I remember and it that. Seemed like, it seemed like it got lumped into a bunch of pop alt-rock that I wasn't a fan of. Right. So I think Disarm, the, the, the song, actually turned me off of the album for a while. Wow. But um, let's see. What's uh, what's another great one from Siamese Dream? You got, um, oh, Cherub Rock. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I was just going to say that. That's, <laughs> that's my favorite song on that album. And and it's a it's an amazing piece of work. And I you know Billy Corgan has said subsequently that many times that that was his uh, statement about sort of the fakeness of the music business and putting people into categories and you got to be grunge and you got to be this and right. But as a as a musical number, it's amazing and it's gr really great live. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, again, I don't think I appreciate it, but you can really tell the songs on Gish are great but they're kind of, they're simpler. Siamese dream is the next level in songwriting. And I even heard uh, Billy Corgan, he's, he was talking about when he played Siamese dream for his dad the first time. I think it was Siamese dream. And his dad yeah. just was like, wow, I had no idea you had this in you. Like he had no idea that he was capable of that kind wow. of song. And so there was definitely a, an elevation in production and songwriting and playing. And you could really tell they were pushing themselves. And then, yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, before you continue, Soma is a great, also a great song. Yeah, also not one of my favorites though. Really, you know, and mayonnaise, mayonnaise is on Siamese Dream, and a lot of people that's their favorite pumpkin song. Never liked mayonnaise. Yeah, me Did either. Either. Both the like both the condiment and the song. 
<laughs> no, I don't put either in the sun. I just, no, I no, 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 no. <laughs> I prefer both to Miracle Whip. Can I just make that? Yes, statement? yes, yes. Which I, which I, which I think was a, uh, a garbage song. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> You know, um, now nowadays, of course, I love I love Siamese Dream and appreciate it for what it was. I didn't get it at first, but then you know, I never would have seen even with that elevation in songwriting, I never would have seen melancholy coming. It just it, it you know it right. was one of those moments where you're like, how did something this dark and this hardcore become? And a, a mega selling pop phenomenon. He's kind of like Trent Reznor in, in this way. Mm-hmm. They're both people steeped in underground, dark music, goth, industrial, who somehow was able to elevate those sentiments and those musical styles, put a pop sensibility to them and, and elevate them in songcraft to where they were being played on top 40 radio and kids were listening to it. All right. Um, you know, Bullet from the, with Butterfly Wing is is amazing that that was a number, you know, a top forty hit. It's just incredible, um, and it was so different than what his peers were doing. You know, your Nirvanas and your Pearl Jams. It was just from a different world, um, and thank God for it, right? I mean, if you think about it, the '90s, the mid '90s, we had you know your uh, Spice Girls on the one hand and your Nirvanas on the other, and Melancholy was from a different world from any of that well think about 1995 for those of you who are alive who are listening to this who were alive at the time and and were old enough to consume music um think about 1995 when this album came out uh, uh melancholy and think about what was around at the time um this is post grunge this is this is when bush was uh, a big band I believe uh, so listen to people were listening to glycerin, you know, and all that stuff. Um, this was different because this album had such variety. And that's one of the things I appreciate with melancholy. The variety on this album is just stunning. Imagine going from tonight tonight, which is a pop song. If there ever was one to jelly belly and, and uh, zero and just those next two songs. Jelly Belly is amazing. And yeah. Jimmy Chamberlain said Jelly Belly is the hardest Smashing Pumpkin song for him to play. Really? Yeah. And I love that. And and I think, you know, what strikes me about that era of the band is how fertile it was. Yes. You know, it's the brawling masterpiece with a lot of highs and lows and dynamics. And there's a real sense of narrative to it. And then, you know, Billy says, oh, yeah, we recorded like over 100 or 150 songs for that album. And you think, oh, that's just a musician being a blowhard. But no. Then later we get the box set and all the B-sides and the stuff they didn't put on the album. They literally wrote a couple hundred songs for that album. The deluxe edition that is on Apple is, I think, the definitive version. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got everything on yeah. it. And uh, Autumn Nocturne, I, great song. Um, mm-hmm. By Starlight, there's the... Uh, just there's there's a lot of things i think it is hard for bands particularly 90s bands and maybe you know magnus you can you can maybe elucidate this better than i can um 
it was uh, people of our generation. I mean, you're 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 older than me, but I I think we're of that mostly of this Gen X generation. It was the 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 concept of fame and dealing with fame and all the stuff that came with it was a real issue. And I think that having an album like Melancholy, which was not like anything else that was being released at the time, trying to do anything beyond that, you're never going to win because it covered everything. And it's mm-hmm. hard to make an album that another album that covers everything without you looking like you are copying yourself. And I think mm-hmm. Billy Corgan, among most of the artists that I've uh thought about from the mid 90s dealt with it the worst i think because it it just i think what it did was it caused him to question every approach on every album almost in a david bowie extent to where everything Mm -hmm. has to be different and i think that's what you find with the door coming next but Melancholy is, and I don't know if you agree with me, is a masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned, of 90s era rock. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you can get much higher than a, uh, Melancholy. I'll, I'll go further. I think it's one of the greatest rock albums ever made. It's the last good double album, and it's one yeah. of the greatest double albums. Right. And there, there's nothing in the 90s that even comes close to it in scope, in ambition, in variety. Right. Uh, and in a way that it ch- both creates pop hits, but also challenges you with really deep and disturbing material. There's nothing like it. Nothing. I mean, nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, a br- it's a brilliant album. And yeah, it sounds like we're gushing, and we are. Uh, it, is a, it is an album that is, you didn't see very, and one of the reasons I appreciate this, Magnus, is that you don't see an album like this come out in a, particularly in an era that is post-grunge. And grunge really limited the scope of people. It compacted everything. It took the opulence of the 80s and it compar- compressed it into three-minute dirges. And yeah. by 1995, uh, every song that came out was a mid-tempo uh, Gibson S, uh, SG, Gibson ES-driven song that had a jangle on top of it and that was it Uh melancholy stood out like a sore thumb and one of the reasons it's so brilliant and one of the reasons billy corgan became the most insufferable man in rock is because of that album and i think that part is hard to escape and Magnus, would you agree that what became the success of the out al- of this album also became sort of the anchor around Billy Corgan's neck? Yeah, I, I think you would probably agree with that. I think yeah. that was uh, they were under so much pressure, and um, a lot of that pressure was self-imposed. But you know that a lot of that what you were talking about the record company trying to make you into something you're not, right? And um, you know, around this time, that's when you start hearing stories about Billy the Tyrant in the studio. Yep. Um, you know, and driving the band crazy. And then, you know, you had drugs and the band members started to leave. And definitely the wheels started to come off the bus. But I don't think you can make something this great and there there won't be consequences. <laughs> you know. Exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, so whether that's personal or professional, um, 
and Jimmy Chamberlain was fired, of course, after this album came out. But, you know, uh, in between, I can't, you know, it was either in between Siamese and Melancholy, or maybe it was after Melancholy. They had um, Pisces Iscariot, yeah. which was a collection of rarities and B-sides. And I actually loved that more than Siamese. I listened to that album all the time. I couldn't believe those were songs that were left off the albums or whatever. And then they also, they later they had another collection of rarities and B-sides. And a lot of the stuff that had been left off Melancholy was on there. Um, so it was just an amazingly fertile. I mean, you just, you just wonder what's left in the vault there. When did uh, Darcy Retzky leave? Was it after Melancholy or was it after Adore? That was after Machina, I think. Machina, okay, all right. Yeah, because Jimmy Chamberlain left after Melancholy, so he was not on for Adore, which is why you have the drum machines there. Yeah. And then he came back for Machina, so it was the band fully reformed for Machina, I think. And then he disbanded the band. And yes, I think he, did. he might have actually left the band during the tour for Machina. He did. Uh, I'm kind of reciting from memory here, but yeah. it was kind of, I think like he felt like the writing was on the wall there. And I think Machina, we can talk about Machina next, you know, which is another really interesting album. Um, I think everyone kind of felt like that was the end of that particular road they had been on for a lot of different reasons. Well, let me throw this at you. I, I, I was list, re-listening and I forgot how much of Machina I'd heard. Um, how much of Machina was a 90s band trying to remain relevant? I, I think it's the exact opposite. Interesting. I think, it, I think it's Billy Corgan trying to destroy any semblance of relevance. Right. To tell the music industry, fuck off, we're going to do what we want. Don't even try to make us relevant. Because um, I think that's the only way that he thought he could survive. Right. Um, <clears throat> You know, and again, Machina Adore is a left turn from Melancholy, and completely. Machina is very industrial and hardcore, and a complete right turn from Adore. It might have been too many changes to ask of a, of the audience in too short a time, which is yes. why I think you saw the album sales maybe suffer. It was too much to ask, um, maybe. Uh, well, Adore, how long was it between Melancholy and Adore? Uh, I think Adore years? was 97 or 98. 98, three years. Let me see here. I'm going to look it up because I want to get it right. Um, I, here's my theory on where things went pear-shaped. Um, obviously, Jimmy Chamberlain, yeah, 98. You get to where Adore comes out. And I like Adore quite a bit, to be honest with you. Um, I think it's the, it's the Led Zeppelin three of their catalog. Um, that's my view of it. Because it's such, a, it's such a left turn from everything they were doing. And it was brave. And I like that. I respond to that bravery. Um, I remember um, when it came out, you and I listening to this quite extensively, uh, Adore. And I remember loving it then, and I still love it now. It's part of my collection. Uh, Machina is interesting in a sense that it is, and you are right, because I always perceived it as him trying to be relevant, but you are right, and you're making me think of it differently. Because at the time, I thought they were just trying to remain relevant. 
but in a larger sense, Machina, uh, as when I re-listened to it uh, a couple days ago, it really did kind of occur to me that this was more close to, I don't know, it's not metal machine music, but it's, <laughs> it's that version of trying to break away. And you are right. You're right in that sense where it's not conformity. It's, it's a little extra. And that yeah, extra but, is what broke them apart. And here's, but here's the dirty little secret about Machina. <laughs> There's some beautiful songs in there. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think Machina has a con. A con. <clears throat> they knew that the sound of it would turn a lot of people off and certainly piss the record company off. And so people might miss things like Stand Inside Your Love, you know, just gorgeous, classic Pumpkins tunes. It's almost like they packaged it in a, in a pill that would be hard to swallow so you wouldn't notice the honey inside. And of course, they released it in two uh, packets. The first album was commercially released. They wanted it to be a double album. The record company fought them on it wouldn't do it and so they ended up releasing the second disc as a free uh to to the as free to the fans on the internet one of the first instances i know of of, of artists doing that right and that's called machina 2 and um uh a lot of those songs you can find a lot of them on youtube as individuals and then there was a lot of songs they had written that just got recorded and were not on either machina one or two so billy corgan has been here's another thing billy corgan's doing right now in addition to all these new albums he's putting out, he's remastering and repackaging Machina with songs that they didn't put on it, both albums together, right. like it was intended, so that people can hear it as a piece of work the way it was originally intended. And it's going to be a huge new deluxe package. Who knows? It might be like the Melancholy thing. There might be 100 songs on that. Uh, but I would recommend everyone go on to YouTube and search up Smashing Pumpkins, it's a song called Home. And it is my favorite Smashing Pumpkins song. Yeah. It was either left off of Machina entirely or it was on Machina 2, so it was never commercially available. Right. It's, a, it's my favorite pumpkin song. It's absolutely beautiful. And so, you know, there's gems in that Machina era, and I can't wait to see it repackaged and delivered as it was intended. Well, I would love that, too, because I think Machina is a unfairly, I wouldn't say unfairly, um, maybe not misunderstood, but like maybe out of time. And yeah. some albums are like that. And I, I fully appreciate that because after Machina, you get the great breakup and then there's five years between uh the breakup and you know when they release zeitgeist i think it's actually seven thousand i think zeitgeist was 2007 and in that in that seven years uh corgan and chamberlain had started you are right it was 2007 yeah yeah, called zwan and they put out an album which was very good and i think james iha put out an album a solo album um so there was seven years that was really the lost and then zeitgeist when they finally did. And it wasn't a reformation of the pumpkins. It was Billy getting back with Jimmy Chamberlain with just yeah. two of them, our original members. And that album is bad. I, there's just no defending it. It's the low point of the pumpkins catalog for me. 
I can I can tell you for a 100% fact I remember when it was released and I was like I don't care. Um and then this is you know me talking as a a pumpkins fan. I just didn't respond to where they were at that time. And the fact oh, no. that it was just Billy Corgan, right? And, and Jimmy Chamberlain, but it was just a glorified solo project because he'd been doing solo projects through from 2000 to 2005 right so it, it didn't really it, it felt to me personally and i and i don't know if you agree magnus um but it, it it felt to me like it was um billy corgan's solo did it come across to you that way uh, zeitgeist i don't know i disagree Some really of the solo albums are really good i i, I mean there was the problems were much simpler. There was no hooks, no melodies that you could discern or remember. Uh, it was the packaging was terrible. The 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 cover was awful. It looked like high school clip art. And I remember thinking, is this the same band that gave us the conceptual brilliance of the melancholy album art and videos? It just seemed cheap. And the music when I heard it, I didn't listen to it once, and I was like none of it stuck i don't want and i don't want to listen to any of it ever again and i never have revisited it and by the way i don't think they the band has either i no. i don't i don't think when i saw them a couple of years ago i don't they didn't play anything from that guys by the way they did play a lot of stuff from machina i think that's actually a band favorite album <laughs> <laughs> well look uh james zeha is not there and he, i think you notice it a lot during this era and he there is a there is a um i'm going to draw a correlation uh someone uh i I talked to someone who's a long time smashing pumpkins fan they told me that billy corgan in their view um was jealous of james eha's looks that he was the the pretty guy and it, what it reminded me of is uh, the Cars relationship between Rick Ocasek and Benjamin Orr, where Benjamin Orr is the matinee idol, the guy who sings, you know, moving in stereo and Bye Bye Love and Just What I Needed and all those songs. And Rick Ocasek is the guy who writes all the songs and gets none of the, none of the pub because he's the gawky looking songwriter in the back. And I think the correlation between those two is, is pretty big. And I think that created a lot of the, some of the tensions there uh, between uh, that. This was his theory is that it created a lot of the tensions that ended up blowing apart the band by the time Matt Machina came around. I, I, I don't agree with that. Interesting. Uh, James Zaha is a good guitar player. He yep. is a charisma-free zone. He is I, definitely that. <laughs> I don't think Oregon ever felt inadequate visually or any other way next to James Aha. I think, I don't know this, but my suspicion is, is that it had a lot to do with who's really doing the work. If Billy's writing all the songs, and if you believe the rumors, playing most of the instruments on a lot of the albums, you know, at some point, if I'm James Aha, I'm like, what am I here for? Am I just here to play on stage? But it's really the Billy show. Yeah. And 
you, and you can understand that if that's what went down. Um, maybe the band members feeling like they're not getting moments to shine. Billy doesn't use their ideas. I suspect it's much more about that type of stuff, about them having room to contribute in the band, which is tough because when you have someone like a Billy Corgan or a Trent Reznor or an Andrew Eldridge, someone who has such a strong and singular vision, a Jimmy Page for the band, it is hard for other people in the band to contribute. So you either have, if you're a James Inha or a John Paul Jones, you have two options. Let it be the Jimmy Page or Billy Corgan show and contribute when you can, how you can, or fight against that. Let it come to a head, leave the band, do a solo album, right? And then I think that's what the latter is what happened to the Pumpkins. And I think Billy Corgan, to his credit, has in later years realized that he didn't appreciate the other band members' contributions as much as he should have at the time. And that, that probably contributed to that. So I think that's probably fair. Wouldn't it be a little bit more akin to The Who then, right? Yeah, uh, Pete, I think Pete, that's probably a better analogy. Yeah, Pete Townsend is, um, you know, guy that writes all the songs, but the, the, the rest of the band members bring it to life. They're the ones who, who do the thing, uh, bring these kind of nebulous demos that he is producing and make bring them to a level that they couldn't be achieved otherwise and i think that probably you know in my own view um you know now that i express that other guy's view my own view is that billy corgan as a guy who writes everything sometimes being known as that tyrant is preferable to being known as the guy that compromised and it's kind of like a john fogarty and uh, Cringe Curler Water Revival. Yeah. John Fogarty writes all the songs, and the guys finally get sick of him and say, look, we want to write songs. So he, they do an album where, I think it was, which one was it, Cosmos Factory, that, where they wrote songs? Or I think it was Joe, if Joe was here, he would correct me on this. Um, <laughs> and it was a flop. It was a colossal flop. And yeah. it was like his moment to say, see, you need me, that sort of thing. And a little bit of that is kind of the same. Where you have a guy who's the sole focus of songwriting, inevitably people start feeling like sidemen mm -hmm. or women in this case, and it, it eventually breaks down. I think Darcy uh, ended up getting arrested or something like that. I mean, she, yeah. she is like, had a messed up. <laughs> she went to a bad place and she had an yeah. opportunity to join this reunion era. And um, apparently was not on board with that, didn't think the terms were fair, et cetera. And, you know, I think Billy has said that Darcy didn't contribute much musically in the first incarnation of the band. However, she did contribute in important ways. The, her look was really important to the look of the band. Yeah. And she, apparently Billy has said she had a great editorial instinct. So she was really good at picking out parts that, that she thought were good, that were worth pursuing. And, you know, in, I think in Billy's mind, that, that didn't seem like contributing at the time. But looking back on it, he realizes that, that was, those were really important contributions. Right. And maybe it took him to make, making a zeitgeist to realize, oh, yeah, those other people in the band, even though they didn't write the songs per se, they actually did contribute really important things that seemed peripheral at the time. But we're actually key to it all working and making it forward. 
Well, you get Zeitgeist and you get Tiergarten and Oceana. Mm. And Oceana is an interesting album. I, I'm, I'm kind of skipping over Tiergarten, but... I love it. It is... I love it. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that is a next evolution, right? Wouldn't you describe that as a a full-fledged evolution from where they were with Zeitgeist? In a way. In a way, it was also a throwback in the best way. Yeah. I remember putting Oceana on and Panopticon, which is a great opening track. It's, it's kind of like Cherub Rock. It's got right. that same vibe to it. Yeah. Just crashing guitars just right away. just hits you. And I remember thinking, oh, thank God we have a Smashing Pumpkins album again. Right? <laughs> Because it was just, it felt so good to hear a Smashing Pumpkin song on a Smashing right. Pumpkin album, which we hadn't heard from Zeitgeist or, yeah. you know. So or really Machina. I mean, let's, let's face it. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Stand Inside Your Love, Sacred and the Profane. But yeah, I see what you're saying. So for me, it felt like a classic Smashing Pumpkins album, mm -hmm. but an evolution of that song, as you say. Um, I felt like now that Chamberlain was back, James Iha was not, Darcy was not. They had a new guitarist, uh, Jeff Schroeder. Yeah. And he's still with the band. And um, I, I love that album. I love that era. They filmed it in New York. It's called Oceana. You can buy it on iTunes. It's a great concert. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, one of my favorite pumpkin songs is on, on Oceana called um, Pinwheels. Mm which is yes. a lot it's got a, a, a synth ro a rotating synth track with some beautiful acoustic guitars from billy and a lovely fairy tale lyric um you know i just it was just it, i just loved it it's just so great song right? so great well it was an interesting era because it ends basically in two, 2013 but it's the the oceana came out in 2011 if memory serves 11 or 12 yeah, something yeah. Like that. and it was a kind of a return as you say to the smashing pumpkins yeah and i think i think that is something that bands struggle with their brand how to make it sound like us but sound new right that's the right and and so we're moving in a and and i think people can kind of see in this uh you know over an hour that we've gone here how this band has evolved from uh, where they were, you know, with Gish through Siamese Dream to Oceana in 2011. And you're like, this band is actually, to me, I, by that point, by Oceana, and I, I really did listen to Oceana again. Uh, Magnus here recommended that I listen to it again because I had completely forgotten, I'll be honest with you, that I had listened to that album from front to back. And I listened to it again. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And it is fucking fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree with Magnus here. It is an amazing album. And it is a legit standalone album amongst the greatest parts of, of the uh, Smashing Penguins catalog, in my view. And, and my understanding is that a lot of the songs, or at least, or at least the ideas on Oceana, started out in the tear garden you know song cycle and right. then they just decided to 
well, let's just pick the best ones and release it as an album. And what I love about Oceana is it's tight. It's mm-hmm. 12 or 13 songs. They're all solid. They all feel fit great with each other. It's a great front to back album, you know? Yeah. We've kind of gone over there, you know, basic catalog here and kind of hit on the some of the highlights all right i i, I but, go ahead don't forget monuments to an elegy which was after I, Oceana. yeah i was just coming to that because okay. <laughs> <laughs> because Tommy Lee, Tommy Lee. that's right it is a okay just let me throw this out to you monuments to an elegy you know when you think of a uh Smashing Pumpkins album. You don't think of Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. No, you don't. <laughs> Playing. When you heard Monuments to an Elegy, what did you think, Magnus? I love. I loved it. Yeah. Um, it's not my favorite. It's. Uh, I don't like it as much as Oceana. I don't even like it as much as Shining Oh So Bright. But there are songs I really like on there. I love um, Run to Me. Um, the rockers are all good. There's not a lot of standout tracks on Monuments to me. But I do, I do really enjoy the drumming. And my understanding is, is that he approached Tommy Lee to do one song. Like, oh, can you play on our single? I forget what the big single was from that album. But um, um, could tell you. Do you remember what it was? It was... Just a second here. I'm efforting. Efforting. It's not saying here. This is what I get for going to Wikipedia. I don't remember. Hold on a sec. Um, it was the Ain't Beige, I think, was a, a, one of them, and um, one uh, and all uh, being uh, Tiberius. No, Tiberius was yeah, it was it was a big one. But uh, but the drumming is good, so maybe he I think it's one and all. The, yeah, that was that was a big one. I mean, it's not yeah. that's not one of my favorite pumpkin songs. But then, you know, so he's like, hey, can you play in this one song? And Tommy Lee heard, like, the other songs. And he's like, well, I would love to play in this whole album. This is a great album. And apparently they got along really well. And Billy Corgan has, has said that for whatever reason, Jimmy Chamberlain wasn't on board for that album. And he's like, I've always really admired Tommy's drumming. And everyone knows him from the Motley Crue, you know, crazy days. But everyone who knows drumming knows that he's an amazing drummer. And so that was an interesting experiment, and uh, it definitely changes the sound. I will say, kudos to Tommy Lee for doing a great job on that album. But Jimmy Chamberlain is just one of the best men. Very propulsive drummer, isn't he? Oh my gosh, this he does so many subtle things, mm-hmm. Jimmy Chamberlain, and um, I, he's so integral to the Pumpkins sound. That percussion, and that's one of the things I miss on the new album, as much as I like it. So, yeah. yeah. You have a, a drummer as talented and subtle and propulsive as Jimmy Chamberlain, and we just don't hear him. You know, that seems like kind of a waste. It is. It, they made him, and from what I understand from some of Billy Corgan's interviews, they intentionally made it sound dry and drum machine-like, uh, yeah. his drummer on it. And, and what bugs me about it is that some of these songs, particularly uh, Purple Blood, needed, I think, that little bit of kick. That Definitely. little bit of Wit. natural Wit sound. Too. Yeah. Yeah. When I first heard Witch, I'm like, oh man, this song could really rock. I wish it did. Right. <laughs> and maybe live, maybe live it will. You know, you can imagine some of these Sear songs being totally transformed in a live setting, you know. And I and I look forward to that. 
Well, moving on from Elegy, you get to uh, Shiny and Oh So Bright. What do you think of that one? Because it's it, to me, it's kind of an okay album. It's not really a substantial album. It's kind of like, we're going to put this out and then we're going to tour kind of thing. Uh, what did, Was that your perception of it? Because you you saw the no, tour. I did. I I love Shiny and Oh So Bright. And let me tell you why. Let me make the case for Shiny. Right. There's a range of emotions in musical uh, palettes on Shiny, even though it's only eight songs. It's very right. short. Yeah. But there's nothing as fun as um, Silvery Sometimes, Ghosts, mm-hmm. that we have on Shiny and Oh So Bright. Right. There's nothing that that jaunty, joyful feeling on Seer. No, At the same right. time, on Shiny and Oh So Bright, even though it's only eight songs, you have really hard rocking stuff like Solaris or Travel, you know. So for me, there's more variety in Shiny and Oh So Bright. And there's also some great drumming and some great guitar parts. My favorite song on that album is one of my favorite pumpkin songs is With Sympathy. That's a song that That's is so pumpkins. Only, only Billy could write it. There's a beautiful uh, chorus that just breaks my heart every time I hear it. And um, just got me in the way that the best pumpkin songs do. So it's short. It's a, and I wasn't expecting it. And I wasn't expecting it to be so um, delicious. It's like when you get a small tr- snack, but it just hits the spot. All right. So for me, I really enjoy it. I know I'm in the minority there. And then I did see the tour. And um, they played, they played um, some of the tracks from it. And they were great live. Well, here's my thing. And the next time they come to town, when obviously people are allowed back in arenas, you and I will see Smashing Pumpkins. Um, where my kind of the era of this band is, particularly in 2018, Billy Corgan actually had a signature line of guitars from a band called, uh, from a, uh, a guitar called Reverend, right? Uh, it's a quirky kind of, uh, um, to explain it, it's an amalgamation of all the classic guitars into one guitar. And Billy Corgan had his own guitar. This kind of looks like a rac- raccoon. And in fact, if you look it up, you'll see it and you'll see what I'm talking about. The guitar looks like a fucking raccoon. Uh, but it is a gu- guitar he played on that tour. And that is where, uh, where you're like, okay, Billy Corgan is now part of the legacy of the 90s. At least that was my thought. And I heard Shiny and Oh So Bright, and I'm like, this is, this is good. This is typical, you know, what I expect from Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, but didn't stick with me, obviously, uh, as, as it, it's responded, you responded to it more, Magnus, than I did at the time. Right. I'm responding significantly more to Seer. Um, <laughs> more in a sense that I can see what they're doing and I understand the artistic bent. I feel like Shiny and Oh So Bright was like, we're, we're back together, let's do something. This, this uh, Sierra seems like an artistic statement. Does it come across to yeah. you like the dichotomy between the two? Does it come across to you that way? Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I think that's totally valid. I, I think Sierra is definitely a piece of art that has a vision behind it and a plan. But, you know, I think Billy, the way Billy tells it with Shiny No So Bright is, 
they went to Rick Rubin and they had recorded, they had demoed eight or 10 songs. And they said to Ruben, can you produce one? We want to put out a single. And Ruben heard eight of them and was like, I love all these. Let's do it all. Right. And it was like a little long for an EP, but a little short for an album. And it wasn't, they weren't conceived of as an album. So that ad hoc nature of it, I agree with you totally. It definitely comes through. Um, at the same time, I love the art. I love the cover. I love the concert and the visuals of the concert. You say one thing about Billy, he knows design and he knows how to put on a show. And uh, I love that iconography and the new logos that they have and this this very Atlas Shrugged thing they have, the cover of Seer, you know, the, the human form with spirit of light. I mean, it's it's really gorgeous. So I just, I love the art direction, but I do agree with you as an album, it is kind of ad hoc feeling but to me that's a part of the term well now we can kind of sum things up where does seer sit with you where i mean because this is ostensibly a seer review podcast honestly i would put it up there i i I said it earlier in the podcast but i'll reiterate it now it's right for me right where i think a door sits um as far as quality as far as quality I like Machina, and it could be right there too. Um, but Machina is a much more difficult. It's much more difficult to absorb. Let me put it yeah. that way. So this particular album is easier on the ears, and the kind of the dry, processed drums, kind of the drum machine nature of Jimmy Chamberlain's drumming, kind of sits very well with me with Adore. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Here's how I look at it. I think this is their COVID album. Mm. You know, it's very homemade sounding. Yes, it's it like is. You can, and maybe they had written these songs before COVID, but to me, it feels like, oh, guys, we can't tour. Maybe it's not safe to even be next to each other in the studio. Uh, maybe I'll just record some stuff on some drum machines and synths, and we'll pass it around and work on it a little, and it's like a do at home. This is the album we made during our quarantine. That's how it feels to me. Yeah. And maybe maybe the circumstances constricted part of the creative process, and maybe that came through. Um, so that's how I kind of look at it. This is their experiment. Uh, this is what we did in our COVID quarantine. <laughs> 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 uh, but, so, uh, but as far as where it goes in the Pantheon, I would place it alongside Oceana with the best of their 21st century output, for sure. It's Interesting. better than it's better than Shining Oh So Bright. It's better than Zeitgeist by far. Um, uh, it's uh, definitely better than Monuments. Um, I think I like Oceana better because it's tighter and there's more guitar. But this is good in a different way, and I, yeah. I like both. And I and I love that I have a band that gives me all of those options. Right. If I'm in one kind of mood, Sear is perfect. If I'm in another kind of mood. Machina just lets me get my aggression out. You know, it's great to have an artist give you a, a huge range of uh, emotional um, points to hit on their albums and even within albums. Gosh, if you listen to Melancholy, I don't know when the last time you listened to Melancholy from start to finish is, it puts you through the ringer. Oh, it's amazing. It's absolutely I mean, amazing. <laughs> you feel like you've taken a journey and mm-hmm. you have met characters and it has changed you. And 
all you know all the more that's what great albums do of course and all the more amazing that that became a mega house selling pop hit you know and this is something that i actually occurred to me while i was re-listening to melancholy it is not an album that fits in with 1995 but it couldn't have been done in any other era than the 90s and that is the dichotomy that sits permanently in 1995 whether it is intentional or not. Um, honestly, I, I, I'll say, obviously, Melancholy was their peak as far as uh, some people say Siamese Dream. Um, but I think Melancholy was their artistic peak. Uh, but what Seer sits like when I, when I listen to Seer, I'm like, okay, the pretension is there. Uh, Billy Corgan your reputation there uh you could have cut five songs off of this album but in the grand scheme of things i appreciate the artistic risk and not a lot of people go to that risky place anymore and i appreciate that risk and would that is why maybe i respond to it a little more plus the fact that i like like you know dark synth and and synth wave uh, music but i think it sits in a very pleasant place as uh an essay of what can be done um in a uh kind of that kind of that it is artistically very same you can and and one of the things that i think that we have kind of honed in honed in on on this podcast is the fact that we this album is very re, exists on the same plane, but that plane is intentional, and that plane yeah. is uh, risky for a band that is guitar driven, as the uh, Smashing Pumpkins. And I think that is what I appreciate more than anything. That risk is whether it works or not is showing me a band that like doesn't want to rest on its laurels. And to be quite honest with you, five tracks less could be one of their best albums. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's a flawed album. It's a good album and it it will reward patient listening and say what you will about Billy Corgan. Right. He knows what he's doing. If this is how this album sounds, that's exactly how he wanted it to sound. Exactly. (laughs) You know, I mean, 100%. So, um, I appreciate it for what it is. I, I am still listening to, by the way, just so everyone understands this album came out, uh, a week ago, less than a week ago. Um, and so I'm still digesting this. Me too. And as with all interesting, challenging albums, uh, opinions can deepen or lessen, you know, where you might change our minds. As I told you, I was not a fan of Siamese when it first came out. I've since come to appreciate it. Um, a lot of people feel that way about a door. So, you know, stay tuned how this fits in with the catalog. I'm just glad we got a new Smashing Pumpkins album to argue about because one thing you can guarantee about any Smashing Pumpkins album is there's going to be some arguing about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the hate it. Um, but it's also great that it came out what the week or two weeks after that ACDC album, which is the exact opposite kind of album. Yes. You know, and 100%. so I love that. I have it's, it, I love that I have both. It's great. Yeah. No, look, we we are we're being blessed with some good music. Definitely. And I, and I think that that part is uh, amazing. 
And I think we, as a uh, music buying public, need to appreciate that these bands that are putting out these, these uh, albums in awful, awful circumstances. Awful circumstances and in an awful industry right. before COVID. So, you know, I would say, if you ever liked any Smashing Pumpkins song, get Sierra. Right. And, and listen to the whole thing. And you may whittle it down to a couple of songs that you like and want to keep. But those songs are, are really well worth your while. Absolutely. And I completely agree. All right. Well, uh, I hope you liked our journey. Through, uh, this is one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. Uh, this, really, was this was really fun. So uh, I hope you all enjoyed this one. And we'll be back. Uh, Magnus and I will intermittently be doing these things because uh magnus and i tend to like the same kind of music so whenever there's a new new uh, like release out you can expect that he and i will do a deep deep dive into these sort of things so thank you for all all for joining us and eventually i will get uh matt to or magnus to get a uh uh a twitter account but who knows (laughs) and 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 thank you uh a Billy Claus for putting a new Smashing Pumpkins album in our stocking. Yes, That's thank you, Billy. Thank you, Billy. <laughs> we'll, we'll see you perform live and maybe in like four years. So anyway, talk to you later. Bye. Bye.